Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The hearings earlier this week on the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson underscore the fact that a woman's service on the Supreme Court goes back only 40 years. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, that in 1981, and she served until 2006. Her remarkable life is the subject of a film Michelle Ferrari created for PBS. Later this hour, we'll hear about the documentary Sandra Day O'Connor, the first. Also, art, environmental awareness, and Education intersect in the Blue Heron Nature Preserve's collaboration with Atlanta Public Schools. First, Giwayan Mata is an award-winning ensemble that focuses on and celebrates the rich traditions of Africa. Through dance, song, spoken word, and drums, the women share stories of the African diaspora. This weekend at Seven Stages, the ensemble is hosting the event, I Am ATL Woman. The performance is dedicated to sharing experiences of black and African-centered women of Atlanta. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about the event is Giwain Mata's artistic director, Tambra Omiale Harris. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me, Miss Lois. Well, please tell us a bit more about the organization. We call ourselves a dynamic, soul stirring, all sister dance, percussion, and vocal ensemble. And you touched on it a bit in the intro that we specialize in dances, rhythms, and songs of the African diaspora. And we like to say it that way because that allows us to just freely move around to various cultures throughout the world where African people 
have landed, where their descendants still live and are still creating and um, existing in unique cultures. Our ensemble is multi-generational and we are really, really proud of that. So we have sisters as young as you know, their early 20s and as grown up as their mid 60s. And it's a beautiful blend of womanhood. We even have some uh, multiple generations of Giwai and Mata members inside of families. So we have mothers and daughters that are able to work, perform, learn and teach together. That's great. Yeah, it is quite awesome. And we're in our 29th year. We're celebrating 29 years of existence. Congratulations on that. Thank you. The words Giwayan Mata I read translate to elephant women. What's the significance of that meaning? Sure. So the term Giwayan Mata is a term that's given to the leaders of women's organizations amongst the Hausa people. And the Hausa people is an ethnic group that lives in Nigeria. And one of our members that was one of the founding members, there were 10 sisters that were a part of the founding company. And one of those sisters was Ramatu Afegwa Sabat. And she contacted her elder family members in Nigeria and was looking for a name for us. And the name that they suggested was the Giwain Mata because we were trailblazers. We were women that were stepping out and doing something very, very different and doing something that even other people were telling us that we should not do. And I'm saying us, but I was not around at that time. I came around three years after that. But the women that were in the founding company were doing something that no one else was doing. And that something else was playing the drums of the djembe orchestra. And the djembe drum is the drum that leads many of the West African rhythms. It is has a goat skin on top. It is played with the hands. It has uh, strings to pull it tightly. And it used to be a drum that was only played by priests, people that were initiated into a certain society that allowed them to be able to play these drums. And these drums have recently, more recently in the past several decades and centuries, been released into maybe kind of like a a public use, less sacred, but also more secular practices of celebration. And Giwayan Mata was one of the first groups of women that were studying and performing the djembe, the dununba, the kinkini, and the sangba. And that's not to say that we were ever the only women that studied these instruments, but people were a little you know, thrown off by the fact that there were these women that were studying and performing on these drums that were traditionally played not only by priests, but also by men. <laughs> so how has Giwai and Mata empowered you to uplift the voices of African-American women and African culture? I love that question. Thank you for asking me that. <laughs> Well, one of the most important ways that it's inspired me is that I grew into womanhood as a member of Giwayan Mata. I've been a member of Giwayan Mata for 26 years, and I'm 46 now. 
So since I was 20, a very, very young woman, I have been matriculating through Giwayan Mata and learning from my elder sisters and my elder mamas in the company. And I've been able to exponentially expand my repertoire and understanding of traditional African dances and rhythms and songs. I've been able to meet hundreds and thousands of people and perform hundreds of times and just really be amongst a circle of sisters who have a passion for community, they have a passion for family, and that have a sense of pride in who they are as Black women, as mothers, as daughters, as nurturers, as educators, as entrepreneurs, as creatives, etc. So that is the first way that Giwayan Mata has inspired me by being a source of sisterhood, a source of Black womanhood for me as I grew into womanhood. They were provided some guiding principles and, and really some guiding characteristics and ideals for me as I shaped who I would become as a woman. And then, you know, taking that outside of myself and being able to watch these sisters extend these things into community. We have people that have been living and working in community for 30 or 40 years, you know, probably as long as I have been born. And that inspires me. Giwayan Mata is often booked to perform for conferences and birthday celebrations and graduations and weddings and festivals and school functions. And one of the reasons why we continue to be booked is that we are unique in that we are an ensemble of women that are doing these traditional and also contemporary works. And so that allows us access to a huge audience of people. And then you, then you kind of ask yourself, well, once I have the audience's attention, what do I do next? Well, I want them to feel good. And in what ways can I help them to feel good? I can um, share with them uplifting words. I can share with them energizing dances. I can share with them deep and moving rhythms. I can share with them um, my experiences. And so that is how the energy of Giwayan Mata has come into me and then out of me again. And as elephant leaders, we are not just performers, but we are literally women that are leading a charge in a particular way in our communities, in our families, in our organizations, etc. Back to elephant women. I did not know until reading about this now that Elephants are a matriarchal society. And well, my husband was just telling me about a story he read in the New Yorker. About elephants are incredibly smart. So I can see why the name and the Nigerian relatives who were contacted thought this was a great name for the ensemble. Let's talk about this weekend's I Am ATL Woman at Seven Stages. What events will be part of the lineup? Well, we have three performances this weekend for our premiere work of I Am ATL Woman. We will be performing Friday night, uh, that's tonight, Saturday night, 
again on Sunday at Seven Stages. And also at Seven Stages, we are being hosted in an in-service day, which is taking place from 2 to 5 p.m. in and around Seven Stages Theater. That's a free event that has just many community services and an engaging workshop. I wouldn't even call it a workshop. It's more like an engaging dance and drum jam with Giwai and Mata from 2 to 3.30 p.m. on Saturday. So we are going to be dancing, singing, drumming. We are going to be offering narratives. Oh, and also we're going to on Monday, the 28th, we will be doing a virtual toast in honor of Giwayan Mata's actual anniversary date. And that virtual toast is called an art of activism panel discussion. And that's gonna be taking place on Zoom and it will be live streamed, available on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll be talking with several sisters in the community about their work and about how their work will allow us a glimpse into intersectionality in Atlanta, intersectionality for Black women. Like, what does that mean for us um, as women, really, not just in Atlanta, but all over the world? Mm. I read that Dr. Julie Johnson's Saturday event will present a new piece through her company, Moving Our Stories. Can you tell us the story behind Idle Crimes and Heavy Work? Sure. Giwayan Mata and Dr. Julie Johnson of Moving Our Stories, we've been in partnership for the past three years. We're moving into our third year. And our partnership is made possible through Alternate Roots and the Certain Foundation. And this particular project, Idle Crimes and Heavy Work, utilizes archival research to provide an embodied movement experience that helps to tell the story of women who have been incarcerated in Georgia. It's, the, it's telling us the history of incarceration in, in Georgia with a special focus on convict leasing and the history of convict leasing in Georgia as it relates most specifically to Black women. Black women were not the only ones who were impacted by convict leasing. However, as Black women, we decided that it was very important to tell the story of Black women in incarceration at that time. Dr. Julie Johnson is the lead artist and she is doing an amazing job with collecting information, collecting archival research, organizing dancers and community visioners and community members around uh, learning about various women who we are highlighting through this work that we call Idle Crimes and Heavy Work. And the title in and of itself kind of gives you a glimpse into what things are about. There were so many women and there were so many people, there were so many Black people that were convicted of idle crimes, like very um, minimal crimes, but were sentenced to heavy, heavy work as punishment due to the atrocities of racism. And we still see that kind of thing going on. And we are just opening up our community's eyes to um, how it was happening at a particular time in history 
right after the Civil War, when we first started to see prisons and penitentiaries around the nation and specifically a rise in inmates who were, were Black. And so we are opening up conversation and dialogue with community about that. Important work. I mean, essentially, slave labor with another name. Yes, with another name. Yep. Would you take us through the five components of womanhood known to Kiwa and Mata as I-woman concepts? Sure. So we have been analyzing who we are as women and we're doing this analysis through the lens of these I woman concepts. And not only are we analyzing amongst ourselves, but we are sharing this analysis with other people as well. And we're sharing this analysis through work like what we are doing with I am ATL woman and also through work with what we did last summer with a video project called Woman Experience. So these five components of womanhood allow us to examine our strengths and even our weaknesses in these areas. And the first one is, I celebrate. How are we celebrating ourselves? How are our families, communities, and organizations celebrating our successes? Or the other side of that is, how are institutions and structures uh, skipping over our celebrations, not looking at us, not saying our names and not uplifting our accomplishments. The next one is I define. And we like to look at I define myself as what story is important for me to tell about myself or what story is important for me to tell about my sisters. We can also look at it from the angle of which of our stories are not being told, Um, what parts of history are being taken out and erased and are excluding the experiences of Black women, Um, and then how can we rectify that with telling our own stories and rewriting the narrative. Another one is I provide, and this allows us to look at how we are providing for ourselves. Are we generating sources of income for ourselves? Are we generating community and resources around us that help to support our well-being? Are our communities and family members helping to support us and increase our earning potential and our resources and our natural resources, even our material resources? And then the other part of that, of course, is what kinds of systems and structures or even people are in place that may be hindering our ability to provide for ourselves, that may be hindering our opportunity to become entrepreneurs, that may be uh, diminishing our ability to provide living wages for ourselves or salaries that are, are comparable to the kinds of work that we are doing. Another one is I protect I protect myself and we're looking at, you know, which members of our families and our communities are helping us to protect ourselves or who are helping to provide protection for us and how are we providing protection for ourselves? Is it legal protection? Is it physical protection? Is it emotional protection? And what does that look like and how is it showing up in our lives? 
And then the other part of that, of course, is what kinds of places and spaces are a threat to our well-being, which threaten and inhibit our ability to protect ourselves. And then the last one or another one is I heal. What kinds of things, experiences, um, ways of living are we taking on and modeling and living in every day that allow us to heal and regenerate, that allow us to take time, that allow us to develop details of ourselves that make us stronger? Or what kinds of practices, institutions, structures may be inhibiting our ability to heal or maybe be you know, presenting themselves as something that is there to heal us and they're not really doing that. So we are taking a deep dive into who we are as Black women by using those five concepts of womanhood. Tambra Omiale Harris, the artistic director of Giwine Mata, I Am ATL Woman, is this weekend, March 25th, through 27th at Seven Stages. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll hear about the artistic collaboration of the Blue Heron Nature Preserve with Atlanta Public Schools. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. 30 acres of woodlands, wetlands, and meadows spread across the Blue Heron Nature Preserve, a city of Atlanta park located in Buckhead. Many wildlife species inhabit this space, like black-chinned hummingbirds, painted lady butterflies, black-eyed Susans, and, of course, blue herons. The Nature Preserve has partnered with Atlanta Public Schools and the Zucott Gallery in an initiative called Fertile Ground from Sankofa to Blue Heron. It brings together students and artists to promote art and environmental stewardship. Joining me now via Zoom, our Blue Heron Nature Preserve Executive Director, Melody Harkelroad, 
and from Atlanta Public Schools Fine and Performing Arts Department, Dr. Sarah Womack with Dr. Sarah Erickson. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you for having us. We are excited. Melody, for those who have never been to Blue Heron, would you introduce us to this space? Yes. Blue Heron is a 30-acre nature preserve that is owned by the city of Atlanta, but managed by a nonprofit called Blue Heron Nature Preserve. We provide year-round conservation programs, environmental education programs, and nature-inspired arts initiatives for nature lovers, not just here in Atlanta, but through the region. Mm -hmm. So I read that Blue Heron used to be seven acres. Now it has expanded to 30. In the beginning, the land was under threat of development when local conservationists rescued it. Would you tell us more about that story? Yes. So as you mentioned, those seven acres were at risk of being developed. And through the tenacity, the resolve, the resourcefulness of an APS, an Atlanta public school educator, she rallied local and city officials to preserve this land and through their tireless efforts, that land has developed to what we have now is 30 acres that really serve not just the local community, but again, the region. Blue Heron Nature Preserve aligns itself with the arts. What were some previous art programs at the preserve? One of the ones that we are, I would say, most proud of is our Art of Nature outdoor exhibition. It's an annual program where we inspire artists, environmentally conscious artists, to come to the preserve, to be inspired by the preserve, and create green-friendly art. It's an exhibition that runs along our beautiful Blue Way Trail for about seven weeks. And so I think that's been one of our most impactful, enlightening exhibitions. We also have an artist in residence program where this artist directs our programs and quarterly indoor art exhibits. So we're pretty, as a small nonprofit, we are mighty and, you know, very impactful in what we do. I'd like to bring the Sarahs in, please. The Dr. Sarah, the new Fertile Ground Initiative is a wide-ranging program bringing together the Blue Heron Preserve local elementary, middle, and high schools and nature artists. What inspired this initiative? I think it's really focusing on making sure that our students have a wide variety of opportunities to learn about diverse artists. When we're focusing on landscape artists, we typically have been taught as artists and teach our students about dead white artists. <laughs> um, and so really to broaden our art teachers' horizons and our students' perspective on Black landscape artists was the focus um, and the impetus for the project. Mm. Would one of you tell us, what is a Sankofa? Sankofa is a type of bird 
that has origins in Africa. So it was the perfect tie into the Blue Heron, which of course is at the Blue Heron and here locally. Um, so it's this combination. That name was actually a creative vision from the gallery director, Omari Henderson, who is also our partner in this project from the Zucot Gallery. And it's just a remarkable opportunity for us to blend his artists that are practicing and using nature-inspired images in their work from modern times and connecting it to the roots that um, we see in past histories in the 18 and early 1900s with different African artists. And what's symbolic about the Sankofa? What I would say that in terms of the idea of looking in the past, so the Sankofa bird, if you'll notice that image that it is, the feet are planted in the ground, but it's also looking at the past and being respectful and appreciating the past. And I think that in terms of what we're trying to do is, is get kids to, as Sarah mentioned, Dr. Sarah Womack mentioned, is to look at the past, be inspired, and then create their own stories. We see these stories that are presented by Black artists of the past and be inspired and create your own stories, learning about present Black artists, create your stories of the future and of the present. Melody, you spoke of previous programs and a few ongoing initiatives. What are some of the projects and events that are part of Fertile Ground? Yes. What I'm so excited about is that this is really a textured experience. It's not just a one day, it's really over months. We're excited at Blue Heron, we're gonna be hosting the Atlanta Public Schools Professional Learning Day here at the preserve. I can't think of a better place in Atlanta than here for educators to go out into the preserve and create their own nature inspired art. And then in the next step will be, they will present their work and the project to their students. And then the students will create their own nature inspired art. They can come here to, to the preserve or go into their own communities, create their own nature inspired art. And then the best of the best will be exhibited here at Blue Heron. It will be selected by Zucott gallery artists. And I can't express enough our thanks to Zucott for really being such a great partner in this uh, initiative. Yeah, uh, they're sending some of their celebrated artists who specialize in nature-inspired works. We have three artists from the Zucott Gallery that are currently on exhibition in the gallery space at the Blue Heron, um, and students will have access to their biographies and the teacher's as well in order to um, use that to inspire their lessons. We have Jerry Lynn. He is originally from Chicago. He's actually a twin. He does some really remarkable landscapes that also include some figurative painting. Uh, we have Charlotte Riley Webb. She does a lot of movement in her pieces that focus on the colors of nature. And then we have Aaron F. Henderson, who is Amari's dad, who does painting that has really bright, beautiful coloring that has a lot of bird references to his images. Um, and he's actually going to be coming on March 21st to our PD, our professional development session, to talk with our teachers as well. So we're really excited to have him. Why is it important to connect students with nature and landscape art in particular? So I would say that 
as an organization, I think it's very important for us to connect, to seek different approaches to connecting people, especially kids, to nature, that typically when we think about these connections, you know, they can be, uh, which is important, environmental education, extremely important. We also obviously you see recreational, that's another way to get people engaged about nature is for them to walk, stroll, you know, outside. But I think as I am not only just an executive director here at Blue Heron Nature Preserve, I'm an architect who has seen beautiful works of art that has been drawn by nature. And I know for myself that, you know, nature can be that muse, that source of inspiration. And so for us to find another channel to inspire, to spark excitement, enthusiasm, self-learning from students, as well as educators, I think that we're finding ways to promote environmental appreciation, knowledge, and stewardship. From the standpoint of Atlanta Public Schools, how does the Fertile Ground Initiative help students and members of the community learn about environmental stewardship? I think it's about students connecting to nature and then using that connection in their personal expression through art. So we're obviously in a city. Those nature areas are fewer and far between than even in the suburban or obviously more rural areas. So that we have the Blue Heron Nature Preserve, a little gym right in the city is a great asset. And so in order to inspire our teachers, which in turn inspires our students, um, to be able to give them that opportunity is paramount to us, to be able to provide those opportunities for connection to nature and to provide those opportunities to learn about Black landscape artists and also to make their own art is really, really important to us. Atlanta Public Schools, Dr. Sarah Womack and Dr. Sarah Erickson. They were joined by Melody Harkle-Road, the executive director of Blue Heron Nature Preserve. The preserve will host an artist talk this Saturday, March 26th, from 2 to 4 p.m. More information about the fertile ground from Sankofa to Blue Heron program and exhibition is on our website wabe.org. Coming up, a celebration of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's 91st birthday with a listen back to my interview with the filmmaker behind the PBS documentary, Sandra Day O'Connor the First, Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Brightsis. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow marks the 91st birthday of former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Her remarkable life is the subject of the PBS documentary Sandra Day O'Connor, The First. When the film's creator, Michelle Ferrari, joined me last fall, 
She began by describing how Connor's upbringing influenced her drive and determination later in life. You know, she grew up in the middle of nowhere and for the first many years of her life was an only child. And her son talks about the fact that her first friends, aside from the animals on the ranch, were cowboys. So her earliest acquaintances were adults, her parents and these ranch hands. And I think she learned poise very early in her life, which served her well throughout her life. And then too, she learned the independence that you learn living in the middle of nowhere, you know, where you can't run down to the corner store for whatever it is that you need. And when you start a job and you're responsible for that job, you have to finish that job. One of the interviews in the film, Rick Perlstein, in one of his books, talks about the sort of typical presidential personality as being a person whose mother told them they could do anything and their father told them they never were enough. And I think that, you know, that dichotomy is a little too stark for Sandra Day O'Connor, but I think there is something there that rings true, which is to say that she had no sense of any limits on her what she could accomplish because uh, she was a woman, but she also was always striving to be better. Would you share the story about the first time she delivered lunch to the ranch hands? That speaks to what you were saying about not being able to satisfy one's father. It's a great story. And initially, it wasn't necessarily in my mind as part of the story, but as I did my first round of interviews, every single solitary person told me that story. So I decided <laughs> I decided that it needed to be in the film. So she's 15 and she sent out, uh, she's delivering lunch to the ranch hands who are working the roundup some distance from the actual homestead. And she and her mother prepare the lunch and she packs it into uh, an old Willie's Jeep and she gets into the Jeep and begins driving. She started driving before she could barely see over the dashboard. And en route, she gets a flat tire. And so there she is in the middle of nowhere, no paved roads, all on her own, and has to change the tire and get to the roundup on time. Unfortunately, she does not get there on time. She's a bit late. And when she arrives, she's quite proud of herself for having changed a tire single-handedly um, with no experience doing so. And um, she says, Dad, he says, you're late. And she says, well, dad, I had a flat tire and I fixed it. And he said, next time, leave earlier. Mm, never enough. Yeah. <laughs> Although it taught her that she must be prepared for anything along that proverbial road. Exactly. She never defined herself as a feminist when the women's lib movement was becoming popular, but she voted in ways that benefited women. Would you talk about how she walked that line between not presenting herself as a feminist, yet advancing the cause of equal rights? You know, she's a very interesting person. I spend a fair bit of time in the film talking about her independence. And I think that's true across the board. You know, later in her life, when identity politics became a thing, she was very opposed to them. And I think that had to do with the fact that she did not like being put in a box herself. 
One of her biographers, Linda Hirschman, refers to her as at once a girl's girl and a man's man. I think she was very comfortable with people and she wanted to be taken on her own terms, not as a woman, not as a professional woman necessarily, just as a person. And so I think she was disinclined toward any kind of showy identification with a cause or an identity. Nevertheless, she knew that she'd been discriminated against when she was looking for work as an attorney, when she was first out of law school. And I think she felt the sting of that, even though she didn't like to talk about it in those terms. Although I would never say she was a robust champion of women's rights, she was attuned to the way in which people get put into boxes and she wasn't having it. One thing that comes out resoundingly in your documentary is how nuanced she was about everything. And I was thinking, how refreshing to have someone in power who demonstrates such depth of thought and fairness without an agenda. I mean, you point out the difference between her and Antonin Scalia. It's it's astonishing. You know, um, you very nearly brought me to tears in the fact <laughs> by the fact that you appreciated that part of the documentary because that indeed is what interested me most about Sandra Day O'Connor. If you approach her story at first glance, it's it's sort of obviously about shattering the glass ceiling. Um, and at this point, that's a fairly familiar story, although in many ways she was an unlikely protagonist for that story. So, you know, the fact that she was the first woman on the Supreme Court was in many ways the film's reason for being. But what struck me is that, you know, at some juncture, and I'd argue it was even before Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the court, O'Connor's story was no longer about being the first. It was about her as a justice and her style on the bench. And I was very intrigued by that style, by her vision of the court's role in American life and her penchant, indeed her gift for building consensus, which increasingly seems to me a lost art, as you pointed out. I just found it incredibly compelling. And I had a conversation with my business partner, a person I collaborate with frequently. And initially he said, oh, you're making a film about Switzerland and no one's interested in Switzerland. Oh, but I didn't see it that way. I didn't feel it that way. I didn't experience that way. I have nothing but respect for revolutionaries, for people who are willing to go to extremes in defense of a principle or to realize a vision for the future. But I also think that in a nation of 300 million people, there's also a real need for caution and compromise for people who pull toward the middle. Because I think most Americans, at least when we're not faced with a stark either or choice, tend to be quite moderate in our views. I think a lot of people recognize the complexities of some of our more persistent social issues. And the fact that she did made me very enamored of her. Yeah. In fact, there is a quote I loved in the film. She dazzled them all. Mm. And she was fantastic with powerful men. But this wasn't referring to physical beauty or any type of manipulative behavior, it was from this essential warmth and interest she had in learning about 
her subject, whether it's meeting someone at a party or reviewing an opinion. Absolutely. You know, even before I read Evan Thomas's book, the book that the film is based on, I watched the 2002 interview with Charlie Rose that is threaded throughout the film. And I just was so charmed by her. I, I loved her dry wit and the way she resisted any attempt to interpret or spin her experience. Um, I felt like her personal attributes were on full display in that interview. And I think that those attributes are in large measure responsible for her success. I didn't encounter anyone either in the book or anyone that I spoke to for the film who didn't genuinely like her. Hmm. Including the affection and the warmth on display in the portion where you address her relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hmm. Their relationship is heartwarming, particularly in these polarized times, because they didn't agree, agree on a whole lot, but they had a real, it was a real mutual admiration society. Sandra Day O'Connor hired more clerks from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's office before she was on the court than from anywhere else, any single other place, which I think, you know, signals the respect that she had for her. And then too, as we talk about in the film, I think it was such an enormous relief to Justice O'Connor to be freed from the appellation of the first and the only. Yes, indeed. And get a ladies' room after 12 years exactly. of waiting. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, it, re- it reminded me of hidden figures. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Oh. Speaking of admiration... Her marriage was a love story for the ages, and it's one of equals. Yes, which was extraordinarily unusual for a 1950s marriage. When I first spoke to Scott, her son, I said, you know, in reading about Justice O'Connor, I was I kept thinking of the um the Anjali television commercial. Do you remember that commercial? I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, the, and the message was, right, that women can have it all, which, you know, I think is a message my generation got in spades and a generation younger than me has learned is maybe rare, if not outright false. But Sandra Day O'Connor actually did kind of have it all. And I think part of the way that she managed it was she had this incredibly supportive loving relationship and a person in her corner who thought the world of her, thought she could do anything and was willing to help her realize whatever ambition she had. Have you met her? I have not had the privilege. And it's so odd for me, actually, Lois, throughout the film, she's referred to in the past tense, which, you know, it's complicated. She retired from public life and I have not had the privilege of meeting her although I do feel that I know her somewhat, but we're, we're dealing with her public life and it made sense to deal with it in the past tense. But I think it's important that people know she's still alive. I'm glad to hear you point that out. And I'd like to think that she will see this and want to meet you afterward. That would be amazing and lovely. And I would so welcome that. Director and producer Michelle Ferrari. 
Sandra Day O'Connor. The first is available for streaming via PBS Passport. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Kate Lamas, and I'm a 3D digital artist. I got my start in digital art in 2019, but when I was a kid, my grandmother got me really into the fine arts, and I was really into painting, but I always thought in motion, so I started losing interest in painting and tried film, and I didn't really like film because you have to depend on a lot of people, and... That's just so hard to get everything together and execute what you want to do creatively. So when I discovered 3D and I discovered it on Instagram one day, I was just like, that's exactly what I want to do because I can just do that all on my own. A lot of 3D artists inspire me, but I really try to push myself to other mediums to gain inspiration. So I really love painters, of course, sculptors, filmmakers illustrators, 2D digital artists. I love surrealist work like David Lynch, Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, Dorothea Tanning, and also I really love magical realism like Frida Kahlo. Um, and I would have to say Hieronymus Bosch as well, uh, even though he was doing stuff in the 1400s, but I think he was way ahead of his time. So he sort of was the founder of magical realism. And I try to emulate that in my work, but I call it magical digitalism. I've lived in Atlanta my whole life. My family's been in Atlanta or Savannah since the early 1900s from Greece. And I stay here because I have so much family here. Uh, but Atlanta has influenced my art in some ways. I think it's just being maybe the outcast, artsy girl in the South who was really into surrealism and fantasy. Uh, kind of made me a little bit of a loner, but everyone else at school didn't really have the same interests as me, so in turn I created my own world inside of this world that didn't really understand me, but I sort of did it without realizing it. At the same time though, I think that the isolation or detachment has given me a little bit of an edge because I sought after educating myself in art and I think it helped me out in the long run. I like to go see new art at Cat Eye Creative. They're doing some really awesome stuff and so is Met Gallery. You can visit my work right now in real life at Underground Atlanta. And there's going to be another exhibit in August with a few people working on that right now. So I'm really excited about that. But you can go visit right now at Underground ATL. And you can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter. My name's Kate Lamas, C-A-I-T, last name Lamas, L-A-M-A-S. 3D digital artist Kate Lamas and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Lamas's work is on our website, wabe.org. It's been over a month since Russia invaded Ukraine, and an estimated 4 million Ukrainian refugees have fled since the attack. 
Olympics to raise money for the International Refugee Committee, the IRC, Three Atlanta classical music organizations have partnered for a benefit concert on Tuesday. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, the Atlanta Opera, and the Atlanta Chamber Players. Several community and youth organizations will participate as well. Atlanta is United for Ukraine will be performed at 7.30 Tuesday evening, March 29th at Shallowford Presbyterian Church. All donations go towards supporting families displaced by the war in Ukraine. Streaming of the concert will also be available through their website, shallowford.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Monday at 11 a.m., Alan Cumming and Ari Shapiro stop by to share the story behind their show, Oak and Oi, a considered cabaret. Plus, Welcome to Night Vale, Cecil Baldwin. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.